Recording in progress. Okay. Um, so we're on Pars Vayigash. And I wanted to discuss the Ibn Ezra's seemingly wholehearted embrace of the notion of Dibra Torah Kalashem Bnei Adam. The phrase, Dibra Torah Kalashem Bnei that the Torah speaks in the language of man, is a phrase that appears many times in Chazal. We find it many times in the Gemara. What does it mean that the Torah speaks in the language of man? It's typically used in Shas as a way of dealing with a situation where you have two words next to each other. For example, ish, ish. Do you darshan the juxtaposition of this second ish? Or do we say that it's unnecessary um, in terms of any drushes? It's just because that's how people talk. This is a machlagis that appears many, many times, as I say, in Shas, between Manda Amram, who hold that the, the, the Torah doesn't have an extraneous word. There's no, there's no dot or tittle. There's no utterance that isn't a hundred percent necessary, and so as such, if the Torah is saying ish ish, then it's the rabbi something. It's coming to teach you something. Versus the other opinion, which says no, that Dibra Torah Kolashim. Now the Torah sometimes uses hyperbole. The Torah sometimes uses the type of way or the manner of speaking that people are accustomed with. And since sometimes people repeat their words, so does the Torah do that as well. And there's nothing to be learned in addition from the additional word or the seemingly extra word, in this case of ish, ish. Tesis points out, Tesis and Menachas points out that even according to the Manda Omar that holds Dibra Torah Kalashim B'nai Adam, that the Torah does use this kind of a way of speaking that sometimes is employing the same manner and modalities of speech that regular people would use, that according to that Mandamar says Teisvis, he himself won't employ it all the time. So this is usually associated with the position of Rabbi Shema. We won't say that he holds this all the time. That even according to that Mandamar, Says Taisus Venera Lafarish demand the Isle Dibratar Kalashimnya, then those that hold that the Torah does in fact speak in the language of man. Lav Bakol Duchte Isle. It's not that they always hold that Dibratar Kalashimnyan that the Torah speaks in the language of man, and that is a phrase, a tool to be utilized in all circumstances. No. Elashumaychacha, Yeshlebimakim Shaina Derish Hakfelis. There is rather got to be some sort of a reason. There's got to be some sort of a some sort of a, a basis to explain why uh, they would prefer to utilize Dibratar Kalashim and Adam and not to simply Darshan. That is to say, Tesis is radically delimiting what the understanding of Dibratar Kalashim and Adam's usage is. Instead of thinking that it could be used willy-nilly at any time, even according to the Mount Omar that holds the Torah Kolashim Yadam, forget the Mount Omar that doesn't. So it says, no, it's used in specific instances. It's not always used. So again, 
In terms of the basic parameters of the Machlaikas, if you hold Dibur Torah, Kolashim, and the Torah uses the language of men, then not every time when the Torah uses specific verbiage are you able to necessarily use it for exegetical... Uh, it's not necessarily a mine that you can go and, and dig in and find various different forms of exegesis. If you hold that the Torah is not Dibur Torah, Kolashim, and the Torah never employs the language of men, then every single time the Torah uses any sort of language that seems to be extra or additional, then you could. Then you could, in fact, darshan out anything out of these various circumstances. What Tysus is adding on is that even according to Madama, the whole Torah, Kalashim Adam, you can't use it to say, therefore, you shouldn't have exegesis. You only utilize it in, in, in specific instances where you typically would have a reason not to be engaging in additional exegesis. That's what Tysus seems to say. However, we can go in the other direction. And that's the direction that I'm going to be using in today's classes and, and, and argue that this is the position of the Ibn Ezra as well. That is to say, in fact, to the opposite. It's not just the cases that are listed in the Gemara, where the Dibratar, Kalashim, and Neodim is in situations of like Himo, Yimo, right? Ish, Ish. Or, for example, it says, Hikaris, um, Tikaris. Um, or situations of Nedir, Nazir. Um, situations where it seems to be double lashing. No, Dibrak Tarkalashim is a far reaching tool that is utilized by the Bishainim significantly more than we find in the words of Chazal. That is to say, if you look at the Rambam, for example, the Rambam in the Maranavuchim says that Dibrak Tarkalashim Adam is. The reason that we find so much anthropomorphic language in the Torah, that is, and as we know, we've talked about this in years past, the Rambam feels very strongly that God is not able to be reduced into any shape or form of physicality or materiality. Nothing that is true about God is able to be seen or understood in a material way. And therefore, and this is actually the right sedra for we won't have time to do it today because we're not focusing on the Ramban. But there's a massive Ramban in, in this week's sedra, in Paris Vayigash, where the Ramban goes on literally for a couple of pages discussing this revolution of Maimonides that the Rambam tried to denude, to eradicate any Dover Gashmi from Yadus, from Judaism. And it's not that the Ramban disagreed. For the Ramban, God's any, um, any way of, of tying physicality to God for the Ramban is also an anathema. However, for the Ramban to say that the language of the Torah therefore follows what the Rambam was trying to do in his agenda, is not true. So, he may agree philosophically that God doesn't have a body, that God doesn't move, but nevertheless, he doesn't agree that the Rambam's characterization and understanding and explication of all of the verses to try to remove any anthropomorphism is correct. For the Rambam, the Rambam is not correct. He may be correct in his idea, He's not correct, though, in his exegesis. And that Ramban is in this week's Sedra. A very, very long Ramban. Anyhow, but the point that the Ramban was making 
is that Dibratar Kalashim and Adam. Don't use Dibratar Kalashim and Adam the way the Gemara used it, which is when you have two extra, when you have two words, one of them is seemingly extra, yet it doesn't follow. Why do you need to say ish, ish? Uh, it could just say ish one time. Why do you have to say it two times? So there you could have a dispute whether or not there's some exegesis there that can be mined out of this double usage or not. Maybe that's just the way people talk. That's the standard machlekes in the Gemara. For the Rambam, that's not the right way to use Dibratar Kalashim and Adam. That's a very limited way. It's not the only way. There's a much broader usage of Dibratar Kalashim and Adam. That is, that the Torah speaks generally in the language of man because people understand metaphors in a in a relatively limited way. And as they become more sublime, more supernal, and more abstract, the, the Hamayin Am, the Hoi Poloi, the masses won't understand in such depth. So because the masses won't understand in such depth, the Torah employs the type of language that will be most appealing to the masses. And that includes anthropomorphic language. That includes language that deals with God as a Dover Gashmi. This, the Rambam explains, the Torah is doing so, even though it's 100% incorrect as a matter of truth, is nevertheless the Torah is doing it because Dibra Torah... So you see how we've moved. We've broadened out the phrase of from something that applied by two words where there seems to be extraneous. You don't need to have the two words one following the other. To now discussing the whole matter of anthropomorphism in the Torah. What we'd like to do here is go a step further. The is just the way the Torah talks in general not simply or not specifically or limited only to situations of anthropomorphic activity or situations of two sentences uh, of two words that are following each other that don't seem to be necessary to be saying both no we can say it in other situations like where the torah for example was rounding <coughs> the torah is not being so incredibly specific about something and speaking more in generalities <coughs> here as well we can use the phrase of Dibratar Kalashim Yadam. In fact, the Ibn Ezra himself is not using this phrase in, in, in Sefer Bereshis, but nevertheless, he's constantly employing this kind of approach. And we can see that in this week's Sedra. The issue that comes up in our Sedra is an issue that is a pretty famous issue, which is that the, the Torah tells us that Yaakov comes down to Mitzrayim with 70 members of his family. And we say later on in the Chumash, B'shivim Nefesh, Yordu Avasecha Mitzrayma, Rav Ata Somcha, and now Hashem has made you You went down to Egypt with 70 people. This is part of our historic saying, right? We say this by the Haggadah. This is something that we repeat to each generation. We start out with a little group of 70, and we ended up becoming massive. But if you count, you don't get 70. If you count the numbers of all the different people that are mentioned on the way down to Egypt, it says only 69. So the common answer is that the Torah is simply rounding up. You have 69, so the Torah is saying 70. The problem with this answer for the Ibn Ezra is that the Torah gives two levels of counting. There's the Kol Yerech Yaakov, there's 70. And then there's a separate count for each and every wife. Right? There was 33 for the tribe of Leah. 
uh, for the children from Leah, right? And there was 16, and there was 14. There was each one, or, 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 or and seven. Each one of the of the Imahis is counted with her progeny, and that's how we get to 270. And if you count all of those numbers, the number 33, which is the for the progeny of Leah, doesn't work. Because Leah, if you count it, only has 32. So it's not just that the 70 number was being rounded up. Which you could say, okay, that's fine. Torah wants to round up. How could you round up from 32 and say it's 33? That's not a round number. It's not 35. It's not 30. It's 32. Instead of saying the correct number 32, you're saying 33. There's no rounding. So therefore, for the Ibn Ezra, well, I might have been able to say... <coughs> that 70 is rounded up from 69. I can't say that 33 is rounded up from 32. So if I can't say that 33 is rounded up from 32, then I'm not going to say that 70 is rounded up from 69. And then the question is a substantive one. Why would the Torah make a mistake in relation to saying 32, which is the actual count, to saying 33, which is wrong? On that, <coughs> it says the Ibn Ezra must be that Yaakov is minaminin. Yaakov is the one being counted as well. So if Yaakov is being counted as well, then it's 33, and then it's truly 70. And of course, you don't have Yochavah being counted as part of the count, which the Ibn Ezra himself doesn't like. We've mentioned before the Ramban's fight with the Ibn Ezra about the Guinness World Book of Records. I'm not getting into that now. So, when you end up as the situation where according to the Ibn Ezra, the real number is 33, the real number is 70, because you're including Yaakov. Ah, you're going to ask. Well, I don't understand. The psukim militate against this. If you look at the psukim carefully, the psukim say that, The amount of, of the people that came from the loins of Jacob was 70. But what do you mean? There's no 70. It's only 69. It can't be Yaakov is coming from himself. So says the Ibn Ezra, Da ki echad mishivim. The Torah wasn't so chayshish, it wasn't so worried <coughs> that it had to knock out one from this count of 70. That is, the Torah doesn't have to be so precise. The Torah can speak in sort of a generality. The Torah can speak in, you know, with a wider rounding sense. That is, even though we're saying that this is all Yetzi Yerech Yaakov. The reality is it's not all Yetzi Yerech Yaakov. Almost everybody is Yetzi Yerech Yaakov. There's one exception, Yaakov himself. Are you going to say, but the, uh, it's not precise? Okay. The Torah is not so worried about that. So for the Ibn Ezra, this is a fundamental point. This is a fundamental point that Torah can sometimes speak in generalities, <coughs> and even though it says that everybody who came down was 70 from Yetzi Yerach Yaakov, it wasn't all Yetzi Yerach Yaakov, it was only 69. And the Ibn Ezra gives an example. The example is back in Parshas Vayishlach, after the Maeser of Reuven and Bila, the Torah says, Yaakov <coughs> the sons of Jacob were 12, and we have a list, we have a list of the, of the, of the sons of Yaakov. And the Pesach says that these were the 12 sons of Yaakov. These were the 12 sons of Jacob that were born in Padan Aram. They were born in Aram. They were born by Lavan. But we know that's not true. 
Because Binyamin was just born. He was born in the land of Israel. He wasn't born in Padan Aram. So how could you say that these were the Shtemas of Banov of Yaakov of Aram? They weren't all born in Padan Aram. The Ibn Ezra says over there, if you look back in Vayishlach, Kosov al Haroi, the Torah is writing on the, on the majority, the large majority, with 11 of 12 were born in Padan Aram. That's sufficient. <coughs> and here the Ibn Ezra points out that I can show you many, many more examples of this. That is to say for the Ibn Ezra, this idea of talking the way, in, in this sense, the way people talk. Not every, Nobody's so precise as to make sure they qualify every possible permutation of a statement. You speak generally, you speak normal. So it's not 100% accurate. That doesn't make it an inaccurate statement. It makes it a statement that can actually be used. If I'm going to go and qualify every possible statement I say to make sure that every permutation of it is 100%, I'll spend all day long on one statement. I'll never get anywhere done in life. So for this, for the Ibn Ezra, there's so many more to show you, is fundamental. That is, what we're calling here the wider understanding of Dibra Torah Kalashim and Adam, that the Torah speaks in generalities, it's not 100% precise in terms of qualifying every possible qualifier. That's something that's used as a way of speaking repeatedly in the Torah. And, and for the Ibn Ezra, this is key, this is necessary, because otherwise the amount of length of the Torah will just be it would be impossible. It would be impossible. For example, just to give a, uh, an example that's not really relevant to the Parsha, but maybe somewhat edifying nonetheless. Right? The United States Constitution is a few pages. It's really not very long. If you look at the EU Constitution for the European Union, it's literally thousands of pages. Why is that? The reason is because it's the, it's got way more qualifiers in there. It's got way more levels of depth and of meaning. So if you want a law book, then you're going to have to put in every possible qualification. But that's not what the Torah is meant here to do. The Torah here is meant to be our, or the original understanding, like a constitution. It's giving you the basic framework, the basic bedrock. Zil Gemar for the rest of it. You're going to have to figure out all the qualifications over eons of time. But I'm not giving you a book of all the qualifications. That would not be then the safer that we have. That will be much more akin to the EU Constitution, where they're trying to get every possible permutation written down. So then you need thousands and thousands of pages for a Constitution. So for the Ibn Ezra, this is a fundamental aspect of how he's learning Chumash, how he's in, how he's being masbed the, the the Psukim. And the Ibn Ezra has a nice proof to this, because he says that. Don't give me such problems that the psukim are not so precise when it comes to Yaakov Avinu. The psukim are not so precise even in relation to Yosef. After all, <coughs> part of the count is Menashe and Ephraim. Menashe and Ephraim, what are they and their, their family, what are they doing here? They didn't come down to Egypt at all. They were in Egypt. They didn't come down to Egypt. They were there the whole time. And yet, we're nevertheless saying, and the Pasuk is telling us, that B'Shivim Nefesh Yordu Avasecha Mitzrayimah? That's not true. They didn't come down to Mitzrayim at all. 
Or when it says, that they're the ones who came down to Mitzrayim. They didn't come down to Mitzrayim at all. Yosef didn't come down. Or should I say Yosef came down many years before. But he wasn't coming down now. And his sons Menashe and Ephraim had never been to Eretz Canaan. They weren't coming down. Therefore, says the Ibn Ezra, forget you're worried about me saying that Yaakov Avinu is part of the count and he wasn't part of his Yetzi Yerech Yaakov and he's not part of the 70. How could he be if the Torah is talking in generality? The Torah is not being super precise? That's a problem about Yaakov? What about Menashe and Ephraim? That's a more fundamental problem. Therefore, says the Ibn Ezra, it's proof that I'm right. That the Torah included within the count of seven people that never went down to Egypt at all. So the Torah can include Yaakov as well. And it all goes under this umbrella of the Torah speaks in ways that are not 100% precise. It's speaking in more generalities. It's speaking in the way normative people would speak. Because otherwise, you would take up that much more room. It would make the Torah that much more unwieldy. And it would defeat the purpose of what the Torah is actually trying to provide, what it is try- the Torah is trying to be. So I want to go now to our Sadra, last week's Sadra, and talk about a Pasuk that we come across the Torah seems to suggest that there was a famine throughout the lands of the world. The There was a famine throughout all the lands, and in the land of Egypt there was food. And the Pasuk again says, the, the famine was on the whole land, on Kol Haaretz. The Kol Haaretz and the whole land, they all came to Egypt to buy food. Because the famine was very strong throughout the land, all the land. There was no food, there was no bread anywhere throughout the, all the land. What But... But the exception was that there was food in Egypt. <coughs> when we're saying that what lands are we talking about? There was a famine in all of the lands. Which lands are those? Is that just the land of Egypt? And, and the land of Canaan? Or is that other lands as well? Is it the whole world? So the Ibn Ezra tells us that, in fact, when it says it doesn't mean all of the lands in the world. means It means that these were the lands that were adjacent to the land of Mitzrayim. doesn't necessarily mean Eretz Canaan, but it means all the lands around Egypt. So to the left could be like a, uh, you know, Libya. You know, to the south could be like a Sudan. There's nothing really the north of Egypt. But 
in the east if it was, you know, Canaan. That's what we're referring to. We're referring to the lands adjacent. That's what it means, Kolarotes. Unless you think this is the, the position of, of the Ibn Ezra alone, it's not. The Ramban says the same. The Ramban says, Mechol Aratis must be the lands around Egypt. What are the faraway lands going to do? They can't come to Egypt. They're too far away. So why would the Torah even be talking about their impact? So for the Ramban, for the Ibn Ezra, and also for the Rashban, by the way, the famine, when we say Kolo Arotes, when we talk about Kolo Arotes, the famine took place in Egypt and in its immediate environs, in the countries surrounding Egypt. But the lands that were farther away, they were too far away to be able to come to Egypt to get food. And so therefore there was no need to be able to tell us about whether or not they were suffering the travails of a famine or not. So we took the word... We took a Pasuk that said, which sounds like there was a famine in all of the lands around the world, and we're limiting it to just the lands around Egypt. In Chazal, it seems clear that this was a debate, that this was a dispute. If, for example, we look at Bereshus Rabbah, Bereshus Rabbah, the, the, the Medrash tells us, there was a famine in all of the land, says the Medrash, in three lands, which is probably Arabia, and the land of Canaan. So that is, I'm not sure what Pinkia is, but but uh, Arabia and Palestine sounds like the, the, the Middle East and Egypt had famine. And um, that's what we mean when we say Bechal Aratis. That is like the Ibn Ezra, like the Rabban, like the Rashbam. It's a more limited understanding of the famine that was around in all of the lands. However, that's not the only approach. That's not the only approach. There, there is a Gemara. There's a Gemara M'sachim. And a Gemara M'sachim tells us that what does it mean that Yosef, by Yelaki, Yosef is called Kesef, that Yosef um, sort of harvested and he brought in all of the monies. So the Gemara says, Kol Kesef is of It's referring to all of the money that was around in the whole world. Because everybody came to Yosef for food. What do you mean everybody in the whole world came to Yosef for food? Because they didn't have food by them. That means that there was a famine in the whole world. B'chal Aratis is what it literally would seem to be. B'chal Aratis would mean the whole land, the whole earth, not just immediately around Egypt. So within Chazal, we see a debate about it. The question is, what about the Pasuk? This is a question on the, on the, on the Ibn Ezra. It's a question on all of the Rishonim that, that seem to suggest um, uh, that there was a, a localized famine, is the fact that the Torah is focusing on what happened in Mitzrayim and in Canaan something that is a proof that that's the only place where the famine was? Or perhaps not. If you look carefully at the Pesukim, the Pesuk says, There was no more bread in all of the land. 
because the famine had gotten very strong. And the Pasuk then continues, They had lost everything in Eretz Mitzrayim and in Eretz Canaan because of the famine. And it says that Yosef was malak at all of the Kesef, which was found in Eretz Mitzrayim, of Eretz Canaan, in the land of Mitzrayim and in the land of Canaan. And then it says, They ran out of money in the land of Mitzrayim and the land of Canaan. Maybe that's a fantastic proof to the to the Medrash that says that there was only a famine in a few lands, not a famine in the whole world. Because if there was a famine in the whole world, maybe then the Torah would be not just focused on Eretz Canaan and Eretz Mitzrayim. On this, um, the Marsha says it's not a proof to the Ibn Ezra. It's not a proof to those that say that there was a localized famine. The Marsha says because the Torah is just talking about what's relevant for our story. What's relevant for our story is the land of Canaan. It's not relevant to, to our story, the land, other lands around the around the world. So therefore, don't use this pasuk as a proof that there was a localized family like we saw in Bereshit's Rabbah. It could be like the Gemara in Psachim that says that, in fact, there was a famine around the whole world. Um, and if there was a famine around the whole world, the reason I'm focusing on, on Eretz Mitzvah and Eretz Kanah is just because that's what was relevant to my story. I have a problem with this Marsha. I don't think this Marsha is, is, so, is so easy to understand. And the reason is because the Marsha is saying that the reason we keep on talking about the running out of money in the land of Canaan and the land of Mitzrayim is because Canaan is relevant to our story. But where is the Pasuk in Parashat Vayigash that we're learning about all of this famine business and how Yosef acted? This is the part of the story that takes place after Jacob and the brothers come down to Mitzrayim with the whole family. This is after the Shivim Nefesh Yard Yavasecha. This is after, right? It's at the end of the Parsha there, right? Where we now have the brothers all came down and Yosef wants them to go meet Pari and they go meet Pari and they say to Pari things that Yosef didn't want them to say. And then he brings in Yaakov Avinu and he named Para and he stands him in front of Para to bless to get him a blessing. And then Para asks him famously how old he is, and he responds by complaining about his life. And after that, for the remainder of the Sedra, we learn about how Yosef was acting as the Mashbir in Mitzrayim. How he took away everybody's money and then he took away all their animals when they no longer had anything left. He moved the people from the, the cities to the farms and vice versa. He moved people around. That's and and, and and we learned about what he how he treated the priestly caste in Egypt. This what that those sukim are. At this point in the story, when Yosef has all of his brothers comfortably ensconced in Gaishan. Eretz Canaan is not a relevant part of the story anymore. Who cares what's going on in Eretz Canaan? Who cares if Eretz Canaan has, has lost the money that they had accumulated because they had to purchase food? At this stage of the story, everybody's already down in Mitzrayim. They're not going back to Eretz Canaan. Not anytime soon, certainly. So why would it be necessary to still have a very limited focus of how bad the famine was just on Eretz Canaan and Eretz Mitzrayim. At this stage, we could be uh, have a wider focus, not so myopic. This is my question on the Marashah. And therefore, if that be right, that the Torah is specifically focusing on Eretz Canaan, then maybe it comes out that it is a riot to the Ibn Ezra, that it is a riot to those with the, who go with the Bereshit Rabbah, the Rabban, and the 
Rashbam and others, because if the Torah is taking up time to specifically focus on Eretz Canaan, then perhaps it is more likely than not that the famine was in a relatively limited area of Mitzrayim and its surrounding environs of the immediately in that proximity of that immediacy, that's where the famine was and that's it. That perhaps would go in ways to explain V'chol Ha'aretz being understood in a more limited way. And this then would become an example of what we've said. The Torah speaks using language that people would typically use even though it's not 100% precise. Right? When people say, for example, oh, the whole place is going hungry. Really? Is every single person going hungry? If somebody wants to say, eh, we're all starving. Really? Is every single person necessarily starving? Or maybe some people are not hungry. Maybe some people have a snack. Maybe some people are on a diet. Who knows? So when we're saying, oh, eh, the, whole, the whole land was starving, no. Not the whole universe, not the whole earth. But the immediate surrounding areas of Egypt, that was that was the um, the place that people were starving. A good example, perhaps, to see this is the Pasuk tells us that by Shlomo Melech, the Pasuk says, The whole land, right, the same exact Lashon that we had here, the whole land, right, wanted to go seek out Shlomo. Why? The Shmei to hear his erudite, his wisdom, his, saga- his sagacity was so well known. So everybody wanted to come from the whole land to go hear him. And what does it mean, the Chala Aretz? We learned there that Malka Shiva came. We don't exactly know where Malka Shiva came from. Maybe she came from Ethiopia, maybe some other areas, Nubia, maybe some other areas in the Arabian uh, Sea. We're not 100% clear. But whatever the Chala Aretz means, it doesn't mean that everybody from every corner of the earth came to Shlom HaMalach. Doesn't mean that at all. So, most likely, you have to say over there, the same like we said about the Ibn Ezra over here. It means from the surrounding environs, from the countries in the proximity of Eretz you know, Yisrael, who heard about Shlom HaMalach and his wisdom, his name traveled far and wide, so from those areas where they heard about his wisdom, that's what it means. Don't take V'chol it's literally, and it means every single corner from the face of the earth, they had people that came to go seek out the wisdom of Solomon. There's another example where you see Kala Aretz repeatedly being used, and that is in relation to the Doraf Laga. In Parshas Neach, the Torah constantly telling us the same exact language, as verbiage of Kala Aretz. The Pasuk there tells us, V'yik Kala Aretz Safa Echos Machadim, the whole land, they all spoke one language. And they wanted to build a city. Because maybe they'll be spread out among the whole land. And Hashem did in fact spread them out across the whole land. And that's what we call a bavel. Because there Hashem confused the language of all of the land. And from there Hashem spread them out on the face of the whole land. So what are we talking about over there? Are we talking about here a similar kind of a situation? Are we talking here a, a situation where the Kala Aretz is referring to, when we say, that we're saying that specifically, 
the land that they were building this migdal and this tower and that land, they only spoke one language? Or we're saying, when we say Kolaaretz, it refers to the whole earth. The whole earth only spoke one language. Which is it? If you say, refers to the land that they built a tower and thereby and, and its environs around. So then it's a localized situation where they spoke one language. But if you say that Kolaaretz means the whole earth, all four corners of the earth, so then you're saying that when the Torah is saying they spoke one language, it means the whole earth spoke one language. So that's the question to ask. We're using, again, the same Lashon of Kala Aretz. And we've seen that Kala Aretz, when it came to, when it came to, um, when it came to uh, the famine in, by Egypt, it didn't mean, according to the Ibn Ezra, it didn't mean that we're talking about the, the whole earth. We're talking about Egypt and its surrounding you know, provinces, the surrounding countries around Egypt. If you look at the Yerushalmi, the Yerushalmi brings down a machlekes. A dispute, the Yerushalmi Megillah says, What does it mean they spoke one language? One Madama says that, that they all spoke the 70 languages. When it means Safa Echos or Dvar it doesn't mean that they spoke one language. It means that people spoke many, many languages. And Vchad Amar no, Shayim Adam Loshin Yechida Yishal Oidam Loshin Akkadish. And the other one says no, no, it means that they all spoke Hebrew. They all spoke Loshin Akkadish. The Ibn Ezra, like Rashi, takes the position that in fact they spoke one language. Says the Rashi very famously, Safa Echos is Loshin Akkadish. Says the Ibn Ezra. The Karoi Velai, what seems to me most likely, is Shahaya Lashana Kaidesh. That this was Lashana Kaidesh. When they spoke one language, it means they spoke Lashana Kaidesh. The shame, Adam, the Chava, the Kayin, Gam shame, Upelag Laidim. These various names of, of Adam, of Chava, even shame himself, Kayin, they all come from Hebrew sources, they all come from roots. That have to do with Lashon Hakodesh, so therefore that is likely that that's what they spoke. That is to unpack this Ibn Ezra. It's clear to the Ibn Ezra that they spoke Lashon Hakodesh because they were naming their kids after names that have roots in Lashon Hakodesh. Right, Kain is Kanisius Hashem. Right, Pelag is Kibiyam of Niflagaharetz. Right, Chava was Aim Kol Right, each one was a different reason that's given. In relation to the Lashon HaKadosh. So therefore, for the Ibn Ezra, it seems that it's clear that they were speaking Lashon HaKadosh, and it would perhaps therefore be clear that I don't think you can extrapolate from this Ibn Ezra too much, but it seems clear that at least at that time, not with the Yerushalmi's first opinion that they were all speaking all the different languages, but no, they were speaking only one language, at least in Bavel and its surrounding vicinity. If you look at the Bukhar Shah, for example, he disagrees. He takes the first approach to the Yerushalmi where everybody was speaking 70 languages. There wasn't one specific language known to man. People were expert adept in many different languages. One point to, to, to note is that in relation to, in relation to the, the count of the 70 descendants of Nayah, 
right? There's a there's a the there's a count if you go through Shem, Cham, and Yefes, all the different children, all their descendants. You come up with the Zion Umais, with the seven, with the Ayan Umais, with the seventy nations. But that count of the seventy nations doesn't equal out. And many of the Rishonim notice that the numbers don't exactly equal out. And so the question is, how do I get to seventy? So the the Ibn Ezra here said <coughs> that you can count Noach and his sons in the counting, and the reason. That, to me, that's very interesting, is because it exactly aligns well right with what he said in Arsadra, where he has Yaakov and his sons also being included in the count, and that's how he tries to get to the seventy. In, in that situation, just to be clear, the Torah didn't say that the world's descendants of Noach were seventy. That's Chazal. The pasuk there doesn't say that. The pasuk there doesn't count it. It's Chazal that. Tell us that there were 70 nations. And the Rishonim are spending their time trying to find the 70 nations. So in this case, the Ibn Ezra is taking seriously, he's taking literally the idea that there are 70 nations. And he's saying that the Torah is meant to be understood as reflecting that 70. And well, the way we reflect this is because we have to count correctly. And we weren't counting correctly. You have to count Neach and his sons. You have to um, you know, play around with the with the Kaftarim and, and, and Pasrusim, that they're not different people, and that's how the Ibn Ezra gets to, to, to the count. I do want to point out one other call, one other call arts, also in Parshish Noach, and also where the Ibn Ezra is taking that very, very seriously, says the Ibn Ezra, the Pasuk says, Oid kol yemeha arts. Right, this is after the flood. This is after um, Noach has, uh, you know, brought this offering. And Hashem, as it were, smells it and you know decides he's not gonna. Right, I'm not gonna any longer uh, curse the earth and bring another flood. And the pasuk says, "I'd call you meyarets." And it, uh, additionally, right, for the remainder of the days of the earth, Hashem is not going to diminish the four seasons and and the the basic uh, paradigm of, of life on earth. It will remain. At least God is not going to destroy that. So the Ibn Ezra points out on the words of Kol Yemei Aretz, which is Kol Haaretz, but you add in the middle the days of the earth, right? Oid Kol Yemei Aretz. So it's, you have the Kol Haaretz, and we're adding in the word Yemei. Says the Ibn Ezra, what does that mean? Le'ais, this teaches you, is a sign, Kiesh Lokates Kosov. There is a specific date, a sell-by date for the earth. That is, when we talk about the days of the earth, we're not talking about the specific days of the earth in the in a specific area where Noah and his descendants live. No, we're talking about the days of the earth, the days of the world. We're talking about it in its widest generality, and we're saying that there is a Kate's Kotsov. There is a specific sell-by date by which this world no longer will exist. And it's a beautiful Gemara. He's referring here to Machlegas and Sanhedrin between Abaya and Rava. 
that the 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 land or the earth will last for you know eighteen thousand whatever eighteen thousand is eighteen thousand years cycles who knows it's not I'm not clear and then he, he concludes by saying but no one actually knows not even one in a thousand understands what what it means so what the Ibn Ezra is doing is both giveth and taketh. On the one hand, he understands kol aretz, this kol aretz, as being referring to the whole earth itself. The, our, our universe has a specific sell-by date. And nevertheless, he's also saying that such a sell-by date is not necessarily going to be known by anybody. So what we've tried to show here tonight is sort of a approach of Dibratar Kalashim Adam, that is not limited to the way the Gemara wanted us, or the way that we see it in Chazal, the Gemara, which is when there are two words next to each other, but rather much wider, like we saw the Ramam already was saying in the Gemara Nebuchim, that it applied to any anthropomorphic language. You could say Dibratar Kalashim Adam, but we, here we have the Ibn Ezra taking it much wider, which is that the term generally is speaking the way people speak. It's speaking the way people speak in the sense of using generalities, in the sense of rounding, in the sense of saying things that are not necessarily uh, 100% precise. And yes, and, and nevertheless, we still obviously have a whole exegetical tradition, which is going to be based upon the specificity of certain words and, and verses, yes, and there are certain situations where the Ibn takes those words very seriously and will strain to figure out a way to ensure that those psukim are being taken exactly as they were meant to be. In the case of the 70 that went down to Mitzrayim, and the 33, the Ibn Ezra felt that the 70 was 100% the requirement, given that the Torah said it, but that he would have rounded. But the fact that the Torah said 33, and that wouldn't be rounding from 32, that doesn't make any sense. Therefore, that forced the Ibn Ezra to come up with a pshat to make those words work. And again, the same thing we saw when it comes to Parshish Neach in relation to the 70 descendants of Neach, even though it is not a Pasuk that's saying the word 70, since it's only Chazal, nevertheless, that's still an important number for the Ibn Ezra. And again, he strains here to ensure that that 70 count works and therefore he counts Neach, his sons, etc. One final Ibn Ezra point is the fact that earlier in Parshish Neach, in relation to the destruction of the Mabo. So the Pasuk tells us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wiped out He wiped out all of the things that had been alive on the face of the earth. People, animals, all the things that existed on the face of the earth. <laughs> and they were all destroyed, they were all erased. And the only ones that remain was Neach and his family that were in the Teva. What does it mean? Their name was erased from the world. They had no progeny. And the only ones that remain were Neach and his family. And this is a good response. This is a good shuva al chasiriyadas to those that are uh, missing wisdom meachenu from our brothers shayimim shalehoya hamabul b'chol haaretz that there was no flood on the entirety of the earth. That is 
Of course, what the Ibn Ezra here is referring to is the Gemara that we have. The Gemara in Zvachim at the end, the Gemara tells us a machlegas about whether or not the flood happened everywhere in the whole earth or did it not include, let's say, Eretz Yisrael. Here he's, he's not saying this Gemara 100%, but presumably he's referring to this Gemara and saying that this is a tshuva gemura on the chasiri adas me'achenu who think that the mabu wasn't on the chol ha'aretz, on the whole earth. Because this pasuk is saying that vayimachu mina aretz, everything was erased from the earth, and the only thing that was remaining was vayishar ach noyach v'asher itay and the only thing that remained was noyach and those that were with him in the teva. But what I find very interesting from this Ibn Ezra is that here, Kol Ha'aretz for the Ibn Ezra means literally the whole earth. Not like the Kol Ha'aretz that we saw in Parshas Miketz in relation to the famine, right? And not perhaps like the Kol Ha'aretz in relation to the Dara Flaga. That is not 100% clear as we pointed out. But this Kol Ha'aretz, which doesn't actually appear in a Pasuk, the way the Ibn Ezra is saying it, um, is that the simple understanding is that the Mabel was Bechal Aretz, literally the whole world. There was no place that escaped having the Mabel there. And therefore, as a result, says the Ibn Ezra, to suggest, like those in, in Chazal who do suggest that the Mabel perhaps was more localized and didn't, for example, take place in Eretz Canaan, that is an anathema that doesn't even hold any water. So what we see is that even though the Ibn Ezra is willing to use and utilize his understanding of Debertar Kalashim Neadam as a broad tool in order to be able to limit out what the Torah is saying to not necessarily always apply in the most literal sense and have it apply more generally, have the Torah do more rounding, have the Torah speaking not in such a literal and precise term with needing every possible qualification for every possible permutation. Nevertheless, when it comes to the flood, where the indications are as Kol HaYikum, Hashem wiped out all of the uh, uh, things that were alive, right? And, and the Mosaic says, right? Perhaps as a result of all of these curls, the Ibn Ezra was therefore willing to take a stand and say that this is literal. This Kol Aretz really does refer to the entirety of the earth, and there was nothing that escaped the Mabel. Have a wonderful Shabbos.